to Let's Talk Tri-Delta, a podcast brought to you by Tri-Delta. In this podcast, we can dive deeper into some of the most powerful stories from our award-winning magazine, The Trident, and we can get up close and personal with some of our brave, bold, and kind members. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's talk Tri-Delta. Hello there, and welcome to Let's Talk Tri-Delta. My name is Karen White. I am Tri-Delta's CEO a proud Alpha Row Tri Delta and the editor in chief of Tri Delta's Trident Magazine. I'm here today with Ross Zabo, founder of the Human Power Project, who has helped Tri Delta create a meaningful program that we'll be offering to our collegiate chapters beginning this fall. Behind Happy Faces is a program that is designed to help our women navigate the challenges around mental health and mental illness a growing concern on today's college campuses. So Ross, welcome to the first podcast of Let's Talk Tri-Delta. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be the uh, first guest of this podcast. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Let's get into the topic at hand. Let's talk about the mental health crisis on today's college campuses. Yeah, so statistically, it's, it's pretty shocking to have 25% of college students have a diagnosable mental health disorder which could be, you know, 25% of all Greek life, 25% of a chapter, really. And then to have suicide be the second leading cause of death, those, those statistics on their own are pretty shocking. But then when you factor in how many students feel overwhelmed, how many students aren't sleeping, how many students, students are stressed out, it sets itself up to be like this really is the number one issue facing most colleges today. And that's consistent with what we're hearing at Tri-Delta. So we did a survey of our members not long ago, and the number one request from our collegiate chapters was for mental health programming. I don't suppose that surprises you at all. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. I think that um, what, what's been tough is since most of these college students have been in middle school, they've been hearing about how messed up they are, but nobody's teaching them what to do about it. So we've kind of been just telling them with statistics that I just gave and everything else that like, oh you have anxiety and you have depression and you don't sleep and you're stressed out. And when they're like, what can I do about it? We kind of back off and we're like, oh, well, I don't know, talk to a counselor. So we're not giving them the skills that they need. And we wouldn't do this with physical health. Like we wouldn't run a campaign where we're like, you're all going to die. And then when they're like, what do we do? Be like, "Ah, talk to a doctor. I I was just here to tell you you're going to die. And so that's what Behind Happy Faces is about. It's actually giving skills and tools to college students so that they're not just stuck in this place of hearing statistics, but not having the ability to manage or or balance their lives or talk to their friends or do what they need to do. So Behind Happy Faces is a book along with a program. Tell me about your book. So the book came out. uh, It's kind of funny. When people ask like how I got to where I've been, I've just basically filled gaps. And what was happening was early on in my life when I was speaking everywhere, I had spoken to about a million people and heard the same questions every single day. And the only books available at the time were mainly memoirs of mainly young women, which was great. Like you need to be able to relate to that. But there wasn't a book where you could find out every answer you had about relationships and friendships. And what do you do if your family doesn't believe you? And how do you take care of yourself? And what really is mental health? So Behind Happy Faces originally came out in 2007 with a rewrite in 2013, but it was just based on all of the, the questions I was hearing every single day and giving a practical 
real life guide to answering those questions. I know it's been a tremendous help to many people. Um, I want to ask you a personal question if I can. Um, I have heard you speak several times. I'm a huge (laughs) fan. Um, But you say often that you don't just wander into a mental health career. Oh, right. Yeah. So the like you can't just like have this great life and then be like one day like, oh, I should tell people how great my life is to be a mental health advocate. You have to go through something. And looking back, I can see how much like much more traumatic my childhood was than when I was in it. I think when I was in it, I was just trying to like survive. Uh, the The biggest mental health concerns hit when I was 11. Uh, I visited my brother in a psychiatric ward. Two months later, my grandmother died. Ten months later, my best friend was killed in a car accident. And then two months after that, my grandfather died. And I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania where it was a blue collar town. You just kind of muscled through everything. My family didn't really talk about emotions. And so I did what I could, which was to just kind of put a happy face on and make people laugh, but not talk about my emotions. And then eventually at around 13, I started drinking, uh, drank and hid my emotions until I was 16, got diagnosed with bipolar disorder with anger control problems and psychotic features when I was 16. 16. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And... Like, I can say that now, but like, looking back, I think it was just so confusing. And the alcohol was a way for me to numb out and just shut down and not have the mind racing thoughts and the anger and everything else. Um, I can also look back and say that what was more dangerous about that diagnosis was that I learned to drink alcohol before I learned to talk about my feelings. And so as I went through high school, it was much more comfortable for me to continue to drink than it was for someone to sit down and be like, how do you feel? Like, I didn't know. I didn't know how I felt. And so in my senior year of high school, I was hospitalized for attempting to take my own life. Um, And at the time, like I wasn't on anyone's radar. I was president of my class and a varsity athlete and uh, had a high GPA and was involved in every like organizational organization possible to help other people. But I had this massive external life that, everybody saw in this internal life that was completely different. You had a happy face. Yeah. Wow. And and sometimes I don't even know that it was happy. It was just like, no one else does, the, no one else talks about their feelings. So why would I? No one else is crying. No one else is showing emotion. And so sometimes it was just like, I have to get through this. Um, so take us on your journey. How did you get through it? Oh man. Well, it wasn't quick. <laughs> um, I uh, graduated high school on time. Um, I got out of the hospital and was able to graduate high school on time. I went to American University and two months into my freshman year, had a major relapse with bipolar disorder, which is pretty standard. I didn't do any work to like prepare for college. So I was hospitalized again and got out of the hospital, took some time off from college, went to a local college near my house for three semesters just to have like some support. And then I took another year off from college. And in that last year off, I decided, like, maybe if I just go back to American University, everything will magically get better. But I still hadn't done any internal work and I was still drinking. That was my only coping mechanism. So in that first semester back at American, one one night I drank so much that I passed out for like 22 hours. Oh, my. Yeah. And I can't say that wasn't 
uncommon. I would I would binge drink and pass out for 14 hours or 10 hours or 12 hours. 22 was obviously the most. But that really was that night was the most clear night of a rock bottom moment for me where I was like, oh, if you keep doing this, you're going to die. And it was also the first night where I really accepted everything that had happened to me. And I think with all the trauma at that young age, I just buried it. And then it came out as this immense self-hatred. And so the first step in my recovery wasn't even the acceptance. It was trying to find a way to like myself again. I hated myself so much that I didn't care about the consequences of what happened to me. I didn't care if I drove drunk. I didn't care if I did drugs. I didn't care if I had unprotected sex because like I didn't care if if something was wrong. And so that first step was like, how do you how do you learn to like yourself before you can even deal with the other issues? Mm. So to deal with the other issues, <laughs> I needed therapy and, and treatment. Um, but I think the biggest thing I learned in that recovery process was I never really chose to have that trauma happen to me. And I never chose to have bipolar disorder, but I could choose to change the hiding. I could choose to change just putting on the happy face and I could stop drinking. I could start talking with friends and family members and expressing it in a way that was more meaningful and find other coping skills like exercise and taking care of myself instead of that, that, that uh, substance abuse. So that's a lot of what this program does, right? And um, in addition to changing the conversation around mental health and mental illness, which I think is important, it also helps women think about coping mechanisms, mm -hmm. how to help themselves and how to help others. Take us through the format of the program and um, learning outcomes, if you will. Yeah, sure. So the the creation of Beyond Happy Faces has kind of like an interesting beginning. I talked to a lot of big college mental health organizations who were like, well, you can't create curriculum like that. It won't work. And their fear was trusting college students to have the conversations. A lot of these organizations aren't on the ground with college students. And I had only spent my life talking to students. And I know that if you empower students, they step up. And they rise to the responsibility of what it is because they care. The demand for mental health curriculum is so high and the supply is non-existent. So the concept was you already have these educational programs in organizations that are about hazing and sexual assault and body image and drugs and alcohol. Why don't we just create one about mental health? And so the format is chapter members can lead it with other chapter members. They don't need a background training or understanding of mental health because the activities are done in a way where you have a PowerPoint presentation, you introduce the activity, the members do the activity, and then you just reinforce the learning objectives. So the format of it is like, let's see what model already exists and let's just adapt it for mental health. The actual lessons flow in a way that takes somebody through a public health approach of mental health and a basic understanding. So the very first lesson is giving a clear definition of mental health. What we found in our research was that most people think the definition of mental health is having a mental illness, and it's not. Mental health is not having a problem. It's how you actually address the challenges in your lives. If the first lesson doesn't give a concrete definition of what mental health is, the rest of the lessons don't matter because you don't even know what you're talking about. 
about. That's my favorite part of what you do in terms of framing the conversation before you get any further, right, is to really set the boundaries um, around mental health, right, comparing it to physical health, but also taking a very different look at a spectrum of mental health and mental illness, Mm -hmm. right, sort of disputing that um, crazy sane matrix Mm-hmm. To to a matrix that or continuum that's really mm-hmm. focused on balance. Mm-hmm. So you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and so that's that's where it goes, right? You get this definition of mental health, you get to engage with it, and then the second lesson is changing the vocabulary. Most people think of mental health as you either are sane and don't have problems, or on the other end of the spectrum, you have like paranoid schizophrenia. And the problem with that spectrum is you can have paranoid schizophrenia and be sane. So if you're in two places on the same spectrum, it doesn't make sense. The other dangerous thing about that spectrum is it promotes the concept of only people with a disorder need to seek help. And if there was a physical health comparison to that spectrum, the messaging would be like, you don't need to work out until you get cancer. You don't need to eat right until you get diabetes. And we don't do that with physical health. The physical health spectrum puts needing help in the middle for all people so that you're addressing whatever biological predispositions or whatever else you need to take care of yourself. And we need to change that paradigm for mental health so that everybody's on it. And the way to do that is to have it be about balance. You're either able to balance, you need help to balance, you're unable to balance. And there's a couple spaces in between that, but that spectrum isn't about judgment because you can be unable to balance your mental health from grief or some other thing that happened to you and still going to school or going to your job or doing something else The other spectrum where it's like you're saying or you're not is all judgment. It's all just loaded in in something people don't want to have. And when you talk about balance, too, you talk about the natural stresses and Mm -hmm. changes and challenges that are going to come at every human being. Mm -hmm. So beyond even just true trauma, Mm -hmm. right, and devastating grief, just the everyday challenges and how individuals may or may not or with help may balance those challenges. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. One thing that a lot of research has shown is that there's so much confusion on what mental health is that people look at it as one umbrella. So somebody who has like everyday stress will talk to someone who has a clear anxiety disorder and be like, oh yeah, I know what it's like to have that. But there's a huge difference between feeling stress and having an anxiety disorder. Other people might go through like a breakup and then talk to somebody with clinical depression and be like, yeah, I went through that. You just need to get happy. The opposite of clinical depression isn't happiness, it's, it's vitality. So you need to separate these mental health challenges into different categories where everyday challenges are different than environmental factors, which are different than significant events, which are far different than having a mental health disorder or developmental disability. And that, that part of that conversation is important so that we don't dismiss people who have mental health disorders and developmental disabilities and understand that range. Um, once you have that vocabulary down, then it's important to go into the coping skills. Then it's important to understand what coping is, uh, what causes you stress, how it makes you feel, and then the difference between effective and ineffective coping. Because that line is different for everybody. You can say, oh, exercise is really effective, but it's not for the young woman who has an eating disorder and is running 10 miles a day and needs a different coping mechanism. So it really benefits members to have this understanding of, okay, this is how I cope. Oh, this is ineffective. This could be more effective. And what that lesson really addresses too is you need motivation 
to do that. So we ask members to think about something that motivated them to do another activity that they do well. And then how can they use that motivation in a similar way to change their behavior with, with a coping mechanism? I think pop psychology loves to say it takes 30 days to, to create a new habit, but this isn't a habit. This is a coping mechanism that could be so ingrained from your biological predisposition, something you've practiced for years from middle school through college, and it takes a lot more time to change that. And that's where sororities can play such a key role, because if the environment is set up to support them, they have that chance to fail, they have that chance to grow. And that ties into the next lessons, which are how to talk to a sister and how to make that conversation more comfortable. And then what to do when someone is suicidal or when you are recognizing those warning signs. So the, the lessons flow through this. Here's the definition of mental health. Here's how we talk about it. Here are the building blocks of mental health for yourself. Here's how to help somebody else. And then the last lesson really focuses on, on self-compassion. Um, the way I describe self-compassion is like people are familiar with self-esteem, but self-esteem is high or low. It's, it's a judgment. It's good or bad. Self-compassion is the way you treat yourself. So everyone listening to this podcast has an internal voice. And everyone listening to this podcast will talk to themselves more than they will ever talk to another human being. Uh, you may be asking yourself if that's true. It is true. I'm not in your head. <laughs> it's just how this works. But what you say to yourself is often the loudest voice you'll ever hear. So if somebody tells you that you're beautiful and you're strong and all these other things, but your internal voice is saying, I'm ugly, I'm worthless, nothing is working, then those out external voices can't be as loud. So we do a bunch of exercises on growing that self-compassion and building gratitude and expressing kindness. I was going to say to yourself. Yeah. So in line. And I think that's what um, made this partnership and makes this partnership so special. Right. And um, at the risk of you know, initiating you as a tri-delta, which I won't do, listeners. Um, but our founder, Sarah Ida Shaw, as she wrote our ritual, speaks a lot about growth as a central theme of, of, of membership in tri-delta, but also speaks to self-reverence and self-love, right, um, as core basic building blocks of growing into the person you're going to become, becoming the best version of yourself, right? I think we have such a unique privilege in tri-delta to meet our members when we do, mm -hmm. right? As they're coming into their own as women and people. But we're also meeting them at the age, right? That um, is experiencing the highest rates of mental illness in the country today. Mm -hmm. Young adults between 18 and 25, mm -hmm. right? Something else I've read that you've um, shared with us um, is that 75% of those who will suffer from with mental illness um, will have their first onset by the age of 25. So by the virtue of that, Tri-Delta is in this sweet spot to really help women get ahead of, get a handle on, right, mental health, mm -hmm. much like they would take care of their own physical health. So this, to me, has felt like such a good partnership around our founding and our core tenet of kindness and, and everything that you know and are sharing about mental health. So what a great partnership for us to have. Um, one thing I want to ask you um, to clarify, this program behind Happy Faces is not teaching women to, to counsel each other. No. So it's really important to draw the line between 
a public health approach versus a therapeutic approach. A public health approach is here's all the information, here's how you apply it, and then giving them an opportunity to apply some of the skills. A therapeutic approach would be here's all this information. Now let's sit and talk about it and explore where it came from and how it got here and why. And that part would be really difficult to implement in the format that we have. But, you know, the curriculum is is widely used. It's evidence based. It's shown that if you give this public health information, young women will know how to start applying it. It's not anyone's role in the facilitation of it to help them apply it. It's on each person to create that behavior change, to build that identity and to start finding ways to use it. And so that's the clear distinction we have to make. It's a public health approach, not a therapeutic approach. Well, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you, for the work that you've done in this space, for creating Behind Happy Faces, for working with us. You worked through a pilot with us um, last semester. Um, we've tweaked things in the Tri-Delta way. You've been an amazing partner. And thanks to you and the work you've done, we'll be rolling out Behind Happy Faces to all 141 collegiate chapters across North America, 18,000 collegians. Their families and their friends will benefit from Behind Happy Faces beginning this fall. Thank you so much for being with us, Ross. Thank you so much for, for doing all the hard work that your whole team has done to find the ways to adjust this and adapt it and really make it so meaningful. It, it just means so much to me. Well, thank you. Have you paid your annual alumni dues? It's never been easier. For just $33, you receive access to our newest app and networking platform, Connect DDD, an annual subscription to the Trident, engaging webinars with Tridelta's leadership, and access to fun and engaging events with sisters in your area. Membership in Tridelta is truly for a lifetime. Don't miss out on opportunities to develop leadership skills, participate in philanthropic and community service projects, and assist our chapters, all while receiving the benefits of lifelong growth and friendship. You will also know that your dues are paying it forward and make sure that Tridelta's newest members get the same premier collegiate experience that you did. Go to tridelta.org slash for a lifetime to pay your alumni dues and support our sisterhood. Welcome back, everyone. We just heard from Ross Zabo, creator of Behind Happy Faces. Tonight, we're happy to have with us another special guest, Stacy Cox, who is the vice chair of Tri-Delta's Foundation Board of Trustees. And she's here with us to talk about the foundation's commitment to Behind Happy Faces. Stacy is an alumna from SMU um, and a proud Tri-Delta. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, Karen. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about the foundation's decision to make the commitment to support Behind Happy Faces. Well, as you know, um, the support is a direct result of um, us fulfilling our trilogy campaign, which was a um, about a almost not quite two year campaign to raise one million dollars for the trilogy fund. And to back up a little bit, um, the trilogy campaign or the trilogy fund was created so that we could um, endow an amount to allow us to impact the fraternity um, in an area of greatest need. 
um, and to do something that was transformational and life-changing. Um, and we have, we have given two previous grants, and they've been to individuals and um, incredibly worthwhile members. Um, but this time, we looked for a new opportunity and an opportunity where we could uh, make a bigger impact. So um, when this opportunity came, the Board of Trustees was very excited about the opportunity. So this is a $35,000 grant. Yes, ma'am. From the Tri-Delta Foundation to the fraternity mm -hmm. for this program. And tell us a little bit about the foundation's excitement around not only impacting members, but also our volunteers and our house right. directors. Right, This is really not only going to be... Um, critical impact, but it's going to impact so many. So we're thrilled that not only can we help our members, but we can help those that support them um, locally, you know, on the ground. Um, our house directors, our advisors, um, really trying to, um, through this program, provide them with the tools that they will need to, um, to possibly save lives. So I also know you. So I know that this is personal for you as well. You are the mother of two college-age students. Mm -hmm. um, congratulations. I know you also have a college graduate. I do. Thank you. Very Yay. exciting. <laughs> now if we can get her a job. Um, <laughs> right. No, so I do. I have I have two um, relatively college-age daughters, um, both Greek. Um, so I, I am kind of in the middle of this. And um, uh, I, when uh, I first saw the, the video from Ross, um, you all shared that with us. I wanted my girls to see it. I kind of wanted to gauge reaction. And um, my oldest was extremely struck by it. She was um, an officer um, in her sorority in college. And um, his message really hit home for her. And was, she got very emotional. And she said, Mom, it just opened up um, a lot of memories and a lot of times where I couldn't help these girls, these my sisters that came in with these problems. And um that was a light bulb moment for me because she had, she had spared, or spared is maybe not the right word, but protected me from a lot of that. She didn't share some of the heartache that she was going through with her sisters. Sure. Um, and that's when I realized this isn't a problem that just affects other people. It help, it affects all of us. And all I, and I know I speak for all of us to say that we all know someone who's been touched with that. We go through it at the high school level. Um, you know, I have friends whose children. It, it's, it's a struggle to get to school. So I just think um, if this program not only can help our members, but if we can help um, dispel the stigma. Right. And, and I loved what Kimberly said about um, it being mental health, not mental illness. And if we can really um, change the talk, right. I think that's really going to help our members as well. I think that's my favorite part of this is changing the conversation and introducing a conversation around mental health that's comparable to your physical health, right? We take care of our physical health. We should all be taking care of our mental health. So I love that this program gives our members the opportunity to think differently. Um, in your volunteer roles in Tri-Delta, you've often worked with our members and students. So how do you feel they'll, they'll receive behind happy faces? I think they're going to be relieved. I think that, um, you know, I think that they're all reaching for help or screaming for help. And, um, and the fact that we're, we're validating this real crisis by saying we're providing 
this financial help for you through this curriculum. I, I really do. I think it's validating what um, a lot of people don't want to talk about. They're, they're ashamed to talk about. Um, but it's a really real problem that affects so many of us in many ways. Um, I don't think we've ever been more relevant than we are with this program. And um, I'm really, really proud to be part of it. And I'm, like always, so proud of Tri-Delta for always being at the forefront of, um, of what's most crucial to our members. Um, so it's, I'm, while it's a very serious topic, I'm very excited and proud for, um, for this launch and for all of our chapters to receive this important curriculum. And I think we, we all are. Um, you know, Treadle has never been afraid to tackle tough topics. So behind happy faces goes along with other mm -hmm. topics we've covered in the past. Certainly. Whether that was disordered eating, mm -hmm. positive body image, mm -hmm. right? We've gone as far as to tackle sexual assault yes. and consent. So to me, I think the opportunity to really talk about something that is so timely and so relevant and so critical um, is, is just right on spot for Tri-Delta. Um, do you feel, having worked closely with colleges and universities as well, um, and as a traveling consultant for Tri-Delta, do you feel that this will make our um, partnerships more relevant with our colleges and universities? Absolutely. I mean, we're always we're always, like you said, at the forefront. And I almost feel like because we're always at the forefront, it's our duty. Right. It's our duty to be the leader. And um, there's something in our purpose, and I should know it, but, you know, it talks about how it's our responsibility to forge beneficial relationships, relationships yeah. with the colleges and universities that we have campuses on. And I just think this is another way that we do that. Um, and we know that our universities they're not providing the resources that our young folks need. Um, so if they can't do it, then Tri-Delta will. Well, and I think, too, this is a way for us to augment what colleges and universities are doing, sure. right? So um, with 25% of students coming to college with a diagnosed mental illness, right, the demand for those services on campuses is enormous, and they really can't meet the demand. You're so exactly right. I'm so excited that we can come in with a program that supplements some of that. Um, I do realize now that I'm thinking about it, that I just put you on the road for Tri-Delta and you're not, you did not travel for Tri-Delta. Well, is it too late to apply? No, ma'am. <laughs> no, ma'am. We can absolutely I could be a senior, senior consultant. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so thrilled that you um, are willing to take some time to chat with us about this. Anything else you'd like to say about Tri-Delta's foundation well, and commitment to Tri-Delta and her members? Well, uh, I would like to thank all of our very generous donors out there. Um, they made this possible. Um, their commitment and their trust in us to, to always to do, what, to do the right thing by our members. And um, this is just a really, all our gifts are feel-good gifts, but this one really is a feel-good gift. It's, um, and I, I really just want us to. I'm excited about this podcast because I want us to broadcast it to the rooftops, um, you know, that Tri-Delta is doing this for our members. And um, and there, I think there will be a ripple effect. I really do. Um, it'll start with our members, but equipping them with um, these resources and, and, you know, hopefully they'll help a sister. But anyone that they'll help, is it's going to be, you know, I, I'm just really, really excited about the possibilities.
for this program. So one thing I know is that while the foundation has met its $1 million trilogy goal and then some um, ahead of schedule, um, it's not too late to give to the Tri-Delta Foundation. It is never too late to give to the Tri-Delta Foundation. Um, and any way you would like to give. Um, obviously, the trilogy was a restricted fund, but right now we are really um, are encouraging our members to consider a recurring gift um, that is unrestricted because that will allow us as the board to um, steer those funds to the area that is is most needed. And it may be another educational grant like Behind Happy Faces. It might be um, emergency assistance for a member in need. Um, we encourage our sisters and members to give in any way and any, and any amount. We are very grateful for that. Um, and the unrestricted nature of that giving really does give the foundation flexibility to impact the greatest need at that time. Thank you, Stacey Cox, for being with us here this evening um, and for sharing your story. Um, and thank you on behalf of our members to the Tri-Delta Foundation for funding Behind Happy Faces. Well, we're very proud and we thank you and we thank uh, for your wonderful leadership and we thank our donors again for making this possible. We'd like to give a special thanks to our guests, Ross Zabo from the Human Power Project and Stacey Cox from the Tri-Delta Foundation Board of Trustees. You can learn more about the Human Power Project at humanpowerproject.com and more about Ross on his website, rosszabo.com. That's R-O-S-S-S-Z-A-B-O.com. To learn more about the Tridelta Foundation, go to tridelta.org backslash foundation. And while you're there, be sure to check out the latest edition of the Tridip, now available online. We'd love to hear from you at Let's Talk Tri-Delta. Email us with your ideas or your questions at podcast at tridelta.eo.org. Thank you for talking Tri-Delta with us. Join us next time and bring you 